Exactly. It was the end of this block, so I was really trying to squeeze it in. And today it's rainy and crappy out, so this is a great. I appreciate you doing it on a Saturday. Yeah, for sure, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here. Yeah. So we're pretty like cycling based. Uh, you probably yeah. saw or heard from we were. I was talking to Ashton, who I got in touch with through another guy who uh, he raced on the track with Ashton, and I did some road stuff with him and. You know, my background, I think I might have mentioned in an email of strength training was I started with a cycling coach about nine or 10 years ago. And the strength mm-hmm. training was a couple months. You do it in the off season. Right, Biking right. starts. See you later. And it wasn't until I'm going to be 39 in a month. And it wasn't until I got to be about 35 years old that I was like, man, I'm having, I thought I was having some like bike fit issues or something. And my friend was like, dude, you're getting older. Like you need to really start thinking of other things off the bike. And so I've only been super pro lifting all year round. Uh, I say pro meaning like very for it for probably two years. And the gains I've seen from that on the bike, I tell all my athletes that are 35 or older, I'm like, this is a must. But even younger guys, I'm like, dude, lift and everyone comes out in spring feeling amazing because they're so strong and then we forget about it um right that's kind of where i'm at i'm sure you hear that time and time and time again um i do yeah what's your you know i was looking on your website i love it i don't like to really intro people i want you tell people you're chris del sega and what's your who are you yeah okay uh, so, you know, I mean, I've been kind of around weights for a long time. I mean, there's about a, uh, 12-year gap between my uncle and my dad. And uh, so, you know, when I was kind of, you know, growing up, there was, you know, kind of weights always around. He always had like a little workout area on the patio. He played sports, you know, um, all through high school and that sort of thing. Uh, and then just kind of evolved from there. I mean, it was, you know, our PE teacher uh, in middle school had a weight room that was about three or four or five blocks away from our middle school. So uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays after school, we'd pile into his forerunner. He'd blare Bob Dylan, you know, all the way down four or five blocks down to the gym, we'd, and we'd lift. Um, and, you know, and I kind of fell out of it a little bit during high school, uh, but then uh, started getting back into it after high school. Uh, started actually just trying to kind of get in shape for the Marine Corps uh, basic training. Um, I never went in, uh, but uh, that kind of, you know, kind of blossomed from there. Um, and so I was working as a graphics manager for, you know, a number of years and uh, pursued a degree in, uh, my bachelor's is actually in uh, commercial graphics or in technology. Uh, but, uh, worked for, you know, a number of years in that profession and decided I wasn't really happy with that. I'd been bodybuilding, you know, for a number of years by that point. And, uh, and then, you know, decided to start looking into schools that had exercise science programs. And so, uh, university of Kansas has got a good exercise science program enrolled there. Uh, and uh, graduated with my master's in exercise physiology in 2011. Uh, in that, you know, kind of between that time, I've worked with guys that uh, have played in the NFL, guys that have gone on to play in the NBA. Uh, my most recent guy uh, got picked up by the uh, uh, Boston Red Sox organization, so he's playing for one of their affiliates. And a number of, you know, athletes kind of uh, uh, from a lot of different sports. Obviously, Ashton uh, worked as a strength coach for the uh, men's endurance national team uh, for a while. Uh, that was, you know, kind of COVID hit. And then that kind of put the brakes on everything because it hit just as, you know, the, uh, uh, 
road season was really starting to to pick up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're still kind of in limbo uh, as far as that goes. But uh, now I own and operate an um, athletic strength institute in the uh, uh, town where I live, Florence, Kansas. And uh, that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of it. So, I mean, I've been doing this for quite some time. And the interesting thing that uh, that a lot of people sometimes don't uh, are kind of surprised by is that I have absolutely zero background in competitive cycling. Um, you know, just as I've got zero background in, you know, PGA level golf or NBA right. level basketball or baseball, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, kind of what I do have, I suppose, that kind of separates me from other from other coaches is I don't view like I don't train the sport, you know, I don't train the position uh, yeah. that someone plays in that sport. I train the individual uh, because what I've seen is, you know, you may have two athletes that play the same position in the same sport, but when you start to uh, look at them as far as how their biomechanics work or what strength discrepancies that they have, they may need two totally different kinds of training. Um, and then you factor in other, you know, other things on that, on top of that, you know, as well, like yeah, uh, what is their particular event uh, what are the most common injuries in said event or sport or position, you know, uh, and that's kind of makes up my, you know, my philosophy of training. So, and so everyone, if you want to check out the website, it's athletic, is it athleticsi.com? Yes. Athleticsi.com. So I encourage people to check out his website, follow him on Instagram, and I don't want to steal the thunder, but you're kind of alluding to under your philosophy page, the Kaizen. Is that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So tell people what Kaizen is. I I absolutely loved when I read that on your page. All right. Sure. So the interesting thing about is at least this is how um, I have come to learn about it and understand it. Uh, It's actually a Japanese business philosophy that was taught uh, by Americans as we helped them rebuild their economy after World War II. And so really what Kaizen means uh, is constant you know, continuous progress, but that progress is, is frequently made in very small increments. And so, you know, if, uh, say you've got a factory of workers, a hundred workers, and if every worker in that factory tries to be, you know, 1% better than they were last week, last quarter, last month, whatever, then that obviously adds up and builds up over time. Uh, and so now you've got a hundred employees multiplied by 1% of uh, performance improvement multiplied by 52 weeks out of the year that adds up at the end of the year to a huge improvement. And so, uh, you know, when you apply it to strength training uh, or any kind of athletic training, to be honest, uh, that's really kind of what it means is that, you know, you're not going to go in and set personal bests every year or every every workout, I should say. Uh, but the goal is to, you know, try to improve your per- previous performance in some way, shape or form. And those little uh, improvements add up big time, you know, big over, time. Uh, over a period. Yeah, it is. It is massive. It's actually as we've utilized social media and kind of grown our business and had people find us that don't know us as bike racers. And a question that I would get is like, hey, what's your training methodology, which I really like. And so I've been working through this and putting up like, what are our pillars? What do we really believe in? And one of the the number one thing is consistency. And within the cycling realm, since you aren't a cyclist, there's been this trend in the past, I want to say, I've noticed a lot more in the past, maybe four to five years of athletes that there's some good online programs and I love them and I'm not knocking them, but it's a very like, here's the quick fast track. Uh, right. Like this is endurance sports. Like there is no fast track and it is nope. this consistent year over year over year thing. So I had an athlete one time we'd worked together maybe seven or eight months and he messaged me about how he wanted to win a race 
that I wanted, he wanted to win a race how I wanted, but also wanted to get the same result. And I said politely to him, I said, Hey man, this is somewhat of a backhanded insult to me because I've ridden 120,000 miles and you've trained right. for seven months. Like sure. my first seven months, it, you're, it's a joke where you go like, this is a journey and it's all these micro wins that you get time over time over time. And they add on each other. And it's like, Ashton made the comment, one thing that he's really picked up in his learning how to coach athletes is understanding time and zone. So yeah. if you have 60 minutes to go get, you know, the time and zone after 40 minutes, if you need a break, take a quick five minute break, finish the last 20 minutes. And I just this morning had a guy who was like, he had two by 30 minutes. And he said, Hey, man, I really wanted to impress you. I wanted to give it all one whack in 60 minutes, but I could only get to 50. And I said, you know, I like that you're thinking of removing the rest interval, but also look at yeah. it as you just cut off 12 and a half percent of the work. So oh, while sure. that effort's great, there's, you know, get that little win then the next day and the next. Yes. So to see that on your site, I was, I love that. And um, yeah, it was really, really cool. What's. Yeah. I mean, actually just to kind of follow up one with sure. one thing right there, you know, there's actually a book I'm reading right now called Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, written by a guy named Daniel Pink. And I listened to an uh, interview with him on NPR, and that's actually what wanted, made me want to read the book. And in that uh, interview on NPR, he said something that has stuck, really, really stuck with me, and it really bears uh, worth repeating. And it really goes that, uh, you know, taking breaks is a necessary part of productivity. It is absolutely not a deviation from it. And so sometimes I think that is uh, kind of like what you're alluding to there is that, you know, sometimes people want to, uh, you know, take, not take breaks when they, when their body's kind of, you know, telling them, yeah, you probably should take a break right now. Because at the end of the day, it usually, uh, you know, if you structure it right and apply it right means, you know, kind of what we're talking about, you'll end up better on the other side, uh, mm -hmm. having taken that break than, you know, than not. I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, the magic is the fact that there is no magic. It's just showing up and doing what you need to do daily in order to get to where you want to go. Matt, you're speaking like you are a seasoned cyclist because there's always like, what's the magic interval? And there's a guy that uh, a big program that a lot of us use is called WKO. And one of the Tim Cusick, he's a big thought leader. He really coaches more pros and everything. And he had a webinar where he's like, so this is the part that no one's going to want to hear. There's no secret intervals and the thing about sure. pros is they're really good at doing the boring work and okay. we're in an endurance sport where like a lot of it is just go ride at 75 percent of your max 65 percent of your max and then when you go hard you're gonna go full tilt super hard where everybody kind of wants to go kind of hard so that they go home and they yeah. feel like they worked out and i'm like that's unfortunately that's not our sport like it's not just kilojoules every day it's not you're not on the stairmaster like trying to lose weight you're trying to get faster sure. and have your body adapt to this stimulus so what was yeah. the name of the book it's uh scientific secrets of perfect timing correct and the author was daniel uh, uh pink is in the color p-i-n-g okay. uh-huh cool i'm gonna look up his uh mpr interview also and that's awesome you had mentioned on your site also one of like the first bullet points was talking about nutritional advice for athletes um, saying, yes. hey, you know, you might be thinking that you're eating right, but you're probably missing something. 
What are right. some top things that you see from just athletes in general? And then maybe is there a difference when you see endurance athletes coming to you, like cyclists, triathletes, runners? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the four biggest things that we see kind of across the board, uh, regardless of whether it's a strength and power athlete or an endurance athlete is typically uh, not enough quality protein. They are sometimes uh, frequently chronically dehydrated or at least mildly dehydrated. Usually don't get enough uh, fruits and vegetables to the degree or to the amount that they need uh, and usually not enough, uh, enough uh, 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 healthy fats. Uh, and that is kind of a big deal because, you know, especially with endurance sports, it's an interesting thing because, you know, it's not about calories in versus calories out. And that sometimes is too much of people's philosophy when it comes to training uh, or uh, nutrition, rather, especially with endurance athletes. And so what I mean by that is a thousand calories of jelly beans and Skittles is going to be completely different than a thousand calories of lean proteins and healthy greens and uh, maybe some fruits. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things is that you can't out train a bad diet. And so it's usually going to be a matter of getting enough of the, of the necessary nutrients and the, and the appropriate amounts to support the level of activity that someone's competing at. And, you know, one of the things too, uh, that I see a lot is, uh, uh, just really, and I, and I don't say this lightly, but just really poor food choices, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I have been fortunate to, to do is work with a, uh, a group called the Polycon Group, uh, named after legendary strength coach named Charles Polycon. And so when I worked for that, uh, for that company, uh, we had um, one of the doctors that we kind of did some additional work with, who was kind of a consultant with us, I guess, uh, is a guy named uh, Jim Laval. And Jim is trained as a, as a uh, his background, at least as I understand it, is in uh, uh, pharmacology. So he's a pharmacist uh, by training. Uh, but he and his, uh, one of his uh, uh, business partners were actually brought on to become uh, Corvette's, uh, Corvette Formula One's uh, medical team, if you will. And so one of the things that they started to identify was the fact that all of these different racing teams were putting tons of money into their cars, but they weren't spending any money almost whatsoever on the health and the quality of, of uh, health of their drivers. And so that's kind of an important deal because if you've got a, you know, a car that's worth several million dollars, but yet you're not investing that same kind of attention into your drivers. Well, that's kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of the things that they do, uh, to be honest with you, in an ideal situation, if I had, if somebody was to give to me, you know, control, if you will, over a team's uh, nutrition, supplementation, and performance uh, training, one of the first things that I would do is have them run a food uh, intolerance test. What foods are you tolerant to versus what foods are you intolerant to? Uh, because one of the things that you frequently see with endurance athletes is the fact that they have some sort of low-grade chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. Now, that sometimes is going to be made worse if you're consistently eating foods uh, that you are sensitive to. Now, these are not you know, full-blown food allergies because most of the time, uh, people that are going to be our age or you know, uh, a bit older are going to already know, you know if they're allergic to certain foods, which is completely different than food sensitivities. And so... Uh, when you have chronic foods that, you know, when you're eating chronic food, yes. or, hi buddy. That's just beyond the floor. Okay. Too. Thank you. I'm busy right now. Sorry. <laughs> That's all um, right. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So if you're eating foods that you're chronically, you know, uh, uh, sensitive to on top of the amount of volume of training that someone does, 
then you run that risk of even having more, you know, inflammation, systemic inflammation that you would have if they were eating a diet of foods that they weren't, you know, uh, intolerant to. So I think that's a, that's a huge thing. And I think that's something that more sports programs are actually catching on to, uh, because, uh, I know of a, uh, of a, uh, a strength coach who's got control over the, those kinds of, um, uh, aspects of their performance team. And that's one of the things that they've done. And for example, you know, head coach, uh, had, uh, you know, uh, just allergies, just bad allergies and had to give themselves shots or get shots, allergy shots, like once a week or a couple times a week. As soon as they run that food allergy test, though, they found all of the foods that he was sensitive to and removed them, you know, from his diet. And then all of a sudden, his need for those allergy shots and those just kind of that, uh, just the, the, the things that you frequently see with people who have allergies just kind of just started to dissipate, you know, kind of on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think thing and that's something that i think is not necessarily always given the amount of attention that it needs to be given where would you recommend people go get a food intolerance test done or is that something that they can do is it just like a primary care or a specific facility or what's the best place to get a reliable one done because i actually sure. think I so should do that i've i've thought before that i might have gluten sensitivity every and i can't tell if i train probably more than i should and uh it's there's times where I'm like, I feel kind of puffy. I know it's not fat. And since I'm a big dude, like my water weight can, can be very high or low. And, um, I'm like, I really think like I'm probably eating something that is just not the best thing for me. Um, right. Where would you do that? I mean, that's, so, you know, you can primary care physicians typically will not be, I mean, it, they're not necessarily always uh, uh, receptive to kind of new forms, new things, you know, as the saying goes, don't be the first to use a new modality, but don't be the last person either. Uh, mm-hmm. And so some aren't necessarily always the most um, uh, willing to give it the credence that it, I think that it's due. Uh, so most of the time you'll have really good luck with uh, uh, naturopaths, uh, you know, somebody who does a little bit more functional medicine, uh, things like that. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, uh, of the, uh, sensitivity test that seems to be the most popular within my coaching circle but i can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head i'd be more than happy to look it up and, and sure it yeah shoot though. me an email i'll put it in the notes so if people want to look it up um sure another question i had so johnny cyclist is listening to this right now and he's like all right so the four things i'm missing is everything quality protein i'm dehydrated so i need to drink more water i need to eat more fruits and veggies and i need to change up my healthy fats what's an sure. action item that you think somebody can you know, say we all know you got to clean up the diet. Don't go to McDonald's. Don't eat Cheetos. Leave the candy and cake alone. Um, For the athlete that is already, they're past those beginner moves. They're trying to like optimize everything. Maybe even a guy like Ashton, super high level athlete. And I don't, don't use him as an example, but that type of athlete where you come in, you're like, Hey man, you're actually, you're still doing this. You're still not eating enough of this. Is it just, eat more good protein, look for more good fats. And then what should we be taking out? Are we eating maybe too many carbs, maybe too much bread? What is there a trend that you see or what should athletes look for maybe when they say, Hey, all right, this is what I'm eating. How do I shift these numbers around? Right, right, right. So there's actually the first thing that I usually look for is actually protein. Because if you break down the word protein, it is of Greek origin, but it actually means of primary importance or primary, right? So, I mean, you know, that goes to show just how actually important it really is. 
Now, that's the first thing that I usually look at. And so there's new research out uh, from uh, Brad Schoenfeld that looks at how much protein is kind of necessary, like per meal, and like what the research is kind of showing as far as what supports, you know, anabolism. Uh, and so, you know, and it, it, it's kind of, you know, been in bodybuilding circles for quite some time, but it's usually depending on the level of activity of someone anywhere from one to two grams of protein uh, uh, per kilogram of body weight, you know, per day. So that's usually a lot of protein. Mm-hmm. Um, with endurance athletes, though, it's an interesting thing because, you know, certain sports will kind of self-select. And so you don't guys, you don't typically have guys that look like NFL defensive linemen uh, being endurance runners or endurance cyclists. You know what I mean? So typically, you know, someone's particular body type will kind of, you know, pre-select what sports they're automatically drawn to. So endurance athletes are typically more of an ectomorphic kind of body type, right? They're very, very long. They're very lean. Uh, they very, or they uh, kind of walk around at a naturally low body fat. Uh, so that being said, though, on top of being endurance athletes, many times they want to prioritize carbohydrates. And so you had mentioned bread in there. Um, and so, you know, if it's somebody who has, you know, a, uh, uh, a gluten sensitivity, then obviously I'd be a little bit more concerned as to what kind of bread, you know, that they're eating and things like that. So I would definitely look at the protein first, but then the secondary thing that I would look at is what are the carb sources? Uh, because what I've seen is a lot of processed carbohydrates. Um, and, you know, that actually can add to, you know, the overall systemic, you know, inflammation. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there would be times where we'd show up at the velodrome and they'd have a snack table kind of laid out between, uh, between sets and it'd be full of, you know, uh, gummy bears and, you know, Swedish fish and granola and, and stuff like that. Granola. And I actually know I... granola is going to be the healthiest option out of those three there that I just listed off. We cannot go into my uh, cupboard right now because <laughs> I definitely eat too many granola bars and uh, I do have the family size Swedish fish for like long bike rides, but it's sad. I mean, I have to put a sticker on it that says four rides only. Otherwise, once right. I'm tired and it's 7 p.m. and I'm like, ooh, I want something sweet. I'm like, well, a handful's not going to kill yeah. me. And I have a poor yeah. justification. I stopped drinking alcohol. So I'm like, well, I'm not drinking. I can, I can eat this candy. And it's like, right. hey, you don't, you don't need to like trade vices here. Um, sure. That's actually kind of an interesting point. Because one of the things that you will frequently see, for example, is with endurance athletes, is that they typically have higher than normal, if you will, resting cortisol levels. And so the interesting thing about cortisol is the fact that it is, uh, you know, it's catabolic, right? But the thing with that, though, is the fact that insulin and cortisol cannot be in the bloodstream at the same time to any magnitude because they do exact opposites. You know what I'm saying? And so when you're on a, when your body's kind of used to that uh, high cortisol level, it's actually found a workaround and that workaround is well if my if I sense my body senses if you will and this is usually not something that you have actual cognitive thoughts about it's something that kind of happens and happens subconsciously if you will if you have consistently high cortisol levels your body actually knows that a good workaround eat something sugary because if Mm. you eat something sugary if you eat something it's going to spike your insulin well what does insulin do well insulin drives down your cortisol levels and so with endurance athletes that's one of the things that we that we frequently see is that is that uh, it's funny because when, I, when uh, I was still working as a strength coach uh, with, and had a lot of national team guys, it was always interesting to me because I'd always get like a flood of text messages and emails, things like that, like later into the evening. And so one of the things that we will kind of sometimes see is that you'll have that kind of mid-afternoon little slump, but then a little bit of a rebound in the evening. And that's usually when I would uh, get those text messages and emails is because they're kind of, they're, they're still kind of amped up from the day's workouts and stuff like that. 
That's interesting. And so you're actually getting above my head. And so I, and I definitely know above some of the people that will be watching this. So cortisol is released from the stress from the workout, correct? Yeah. So, so cortisol, anytime your body perceives a threat or anything like that, your body will actually start to then produce what we call a cortisol dump. And so it dumps a, a bunch of cortisol. So it's essentially just fight or flight response. And so as okay. soon as your body identifies the fact that there's a fight or flight, it mobilizes all the physiological systems necessary to either meet or beat that threat. And one of the things that it does is, you know, it, you perceive the threat, you're just like, oh no, you know, I've either got to fight this thing or get away from it. Dumps a bunch of cortisol in your system. Cortisol then releases a whole bunch of glucose, which is good if you're uh, in a workout uh, or, you know, trying to escape a threat. Uh, and then, yeah, you either basically one or, or the other. And when you have a hard time shutting that off, uh, you know, your body's got other ways that it will, that it will kind of uh, help to shut it off for you, if you will. One of those ways is, and we see a lot with like uh, folks who have sometimes a bit of a binge eating problem later in the evening. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we frequently is they typically don't eat enough food throughout the earlier part of the day. Mm -hmm. And then they come home, you know, and you kind of calm down to comfortable surroundings and you're like, I'm hungry now. Let's yeah. Go, let's, let's eat. One yeah. of the best things a guy told me when I first started riding, he said, eat like a king at breakfast, a prince at lunch, and a pauper at dinner. And he said, when I say a pauper, I don't mean no food and starve yourself. I mean high nutrient locale. You're going to bed. You don't need to yes. be, you know. And, and some people think, like, I'm not going to eat breakfast. I'm going to have this little lunch. I'm being good today. And then they're like, uh-oh. And you can't – it. I think we've all been there, but like, at least for myself, when I've, you know, gotten not knowing what I was doing with food, you get there and you're like, I just can't stop eating. Like your brain takes over and it's just like, see ya. And there's actually an interesting sure. thing that I think it was Phil Guyman's coach. I don't know if you know the name, big uh, former pro cyclist. He was talking about, and I can't remember who his coach's name was. He's huge on him eating like a big steak because it's recovery time going to, yeah. to bed. He doesn't need carbs. He's not going to run a marathon in his sleep. He's recovering. So do you recommend, sure. obviously, if you're talking about one to two grams per uh, kg of body weight, um, for me, that's about 160 grams of protein. I'm going to be needing to eat right. it throughout the day. Is there a time that an athlete should try to focus on this? And do you skew that one way or the other based on it's a rest day or I, I feel more carnivorous after I've lifted. And I don't know if that's BS or if that's actually my body like, yo, dude, eat some protein and yeah. get it in there. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think that's definitely, you know, part of it for sure is, uh, you know, get some food in there, you know, right after that workout. Because the first thing that you eat is typically kind of what's going to be shuttled to your muscles, you know, um, after essentially a workout where you're, you know, not, uh, you know, hopefully haven't had too big of a meal too soon to your workout. So your body's kind of running on empty as it were, you know? Um, but one of the things I would suggest as far as like how to kind of divvy it up throughout the day, if you will, is definitely eat a good, uh, you know, eat a breakfast that's rich in protein. I'm not saying not to have carbs, uh, with, uh, uh, with breakfast, but definitely have, you know, a good protein, a quality protein. As a matter of fact, like if like steak and eggs is like no joke, like the breakfast of champions. Um, I'm typically a big uh, fan of red meat um, in the morning, uh, and that's largely because red meat's got more, uh, it's got a higher concentration of tyrosine in it, and tyrosine is an amino acid that is the metabolic precursor to dopamine. So dopamine's, you know, kind of the, it's a catecholamine, but it's also that neurotransmitter that's like, all right, let's get stuff done. So it's kind of like, you know, after you have that, that uh, you know, ha that first half 
of your first cup of coffee in the morning, you're charged up and ready to go. Yes, it's the caffeine, but caffeine also kind of elicits a little bit of a, you know, a dopamine response on top of that. Uh, and so there's a lot of research to kind of back that up too, in that, you know, uh, most research that has looked at, you know, high protein versus high carbohydrate breakfasts have actually shown that, uh, that uh, students will perform both physically, and, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, perform better both physically and cognitively after having a rich protein breakfast versus a high carbohydrate breakfast. Um, as far as, you know, kind of when to divvy it up after the, uh, after that throughout the day, I would definitely suggest having, you know, a good protein rich uh, meal uh, immediately following training or within the first, you know, hour, two hours after training, something like that. Um, and then into the evening, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because one of the things that uh, you will frequently see too with endurance athletes, and this is just endurance athletes in general, is sometimes uh, more often than not, uh, they don't sleep very well or their quality of sleep is not very good or they don't sleep long enough. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I do and suggest is when that's present is to actually have carbohydrates with their dinner. Uh, because your body can actually synthesize and release cortisol even when you're asleep. And so by having, you know, some carbohydrates later in the, uh, later in the evening, like with your dinner, like a sweet potato, you know, something like this, brown rice, uh, steel cut oats, something along those lines, brown rice, wild rice, uh, it actually helps to blunt the cortisol response a little bit. And so that actually puts you in a, a little bit of a better position to actually then start winding down, uh, winding down for sleep. Yeah, I think the that's the one thing that I've had an issue with and why I wouldn't necessarily do the Phil Guyman's coach thing is like I've had the bedtime bonking where I wake up at two o'clock and I'm and I don't know that I'm out of fuel, but like I'm up and I'm not going back to sleep. And there was a couple times that one for a religious reason and the other time just to I like to change things up when vegan one time for about four months and the other time just for a couple. And um mm -hmm. I think it was more because of not getting enough calories because there are some weeks where I'm burning like 25,000 and it's really hard, harder for me to do that if I'm doing a vegan diet, but my sleep yeah. got really messed up and I was sleeping like maybe six hours, which is not, nor I'm usually eight to nine and I was waking right. up at very weird hours, wide awake, like ready to go. So I was getting up and I was like, I had a couple of athletes who are like, dude, why are you responding to my files at three in the morning? I'm like, I'm just up. And I, it, I don't, I still don't know what that was. I think it was just not enough food, but I mean, I was eating yeah. a solid amount and um, yeah. So anyways, it's, it's interesting. Just, man, there's a lot of thoughts from that. One thing that you had said, so what would, so if an athlete though has a really high intense session that day, are you not recommending they eat carbs before that and they're re relying on the carbs from the day before and their glycogen? Or if somebody has like a four or five hour ride, is that an asterisk to the steak and eggs? I would, well, like I said, I would definitely can, I would definitely do steak and eggs, but I, if you feel, um, you know, that, uh, that you need those additional carbohydrates, then yeah, I would certainly add some in for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would add them in of more of a starchy carbohydrate, not necessarily something that's more, uh, more sugary or easier to break down as it were, because you want something that's going to sustain you for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. So sugars, yeah, they make, they, they, you know, give you a short burst of energy, but then they tank, right? Mm -hmm. But something that's more starchy, it may not get as high, but it's going to, you're going to be able to ride it out for, for longer, you know? And so at my gym, I sometimes use like a, you know, use that analogy but use like starchy carbohydrates as like your kindling, like wood yeah. and use your fruits, sugaries like kerosene. 
right? Yes. So you put a you know, pile of sticks, pile of kerosene, well, one's going to burn hotter and faster, but quicker. One's going to burn slower, but longer, you know? I'm all about variety in almost everything in life and especially for like training stimulus, but also food reactivity, I'll call it. When I ha tell people to carb load, so I don't know, you might not be a carb load guy. Do you believe in carb loading? Uh, in the right circumstances, yeah. Okay. Because I mean, that's that just the caveat. It's, you know, it depends on who you're working with. So yes. Sure, sure, works, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was talking to a guy and I forget what he was eating, but it was like, he went full tilt on one thing. And I was like, okay, that's my bad. I'm not explaining this more. I'll go, the way I kind of break it down in my head is like potatoes, sweet potatoes, like a starchy carb, but then also have, um, you know, if you go out, you know, you're driving to this race, maybe your only option for dinner is going to be pasta, like plain pasta and sauce or something like that. And then before you go to bed, maybe some oatmeal, and then if you have like a sweet tooth and you're not super full, eat a little bit of candy or like some fruit, but like have these different types of carb sources and similar yes. in the morning, you know, I've been to so many races where I see a guy eating like an avocado toast and like eggs, but no carbs. And I'm like, dude, you're going to go try and ride really hard for four and a half hours. Let me know how you feel two and a half hours in. And right. you know, I, I, Patrick, the guy that I coach with, uh, one of the guys I coach with, we're very like pro carb and it works for some people, for a lot of people, but I've had athletes that are high performers that are like, I don't, I don't feel good. I'm like, then it's not for you. Like everybody's different. Um, you gotta, right. I think that's when it comes to testing out things. Um, you know, you've got a long ride on the weekend. That's not a competition. Try something then. Uh, that's really interesting. Sure. I will consider the steak and eggs thing. Um, I'm probably in the protein deficient group a little bit. Um, sure. I don't know. I used to try, I, I had used my fitness pal before just to get a sense of like portion sizes and macronutrients. I, I think it's really interesting though. Um, we never talk about micronutrients and you clearly just from the way you talk, know the benefit of when you said like Skittles versus fruits and veggies, uh, right. I think so many athletes are missing the boat on that. And that's really those non-tangible things that are going to help you recover and come back to the next session to train harder and better, which goes back to what we first talked about, about building every 1% over time. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. What's uh, supplements for lifting or sport? Yeah. You into those at all? Yeah. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, like that's something that, uh, that, that, uh, that I, actually used to help teach uh, when I worked in uh, Rhode Island is how supplements can be beneficial and how they can uh, uh, it's somewhat dependent on who you're working with and what kind of what the goal is but by and large you know there are there's been no shortages of examples where it's like okay well what supplements are you taking right now and most of the supplements someone will be taking are more performance-based so then my follow-up question is are you taking a multivitamin and if the answer is no, it's like, well, you don't have any business than messing around with performance supplements if you're not even meeting the basic criteria uh, to, uh, or meeting the basic minimum kind of requirements of what your nutrients are. And so it's been written about, uh, you know, repeatedly that, you know, uh, high-performing athletes many times lose nutrients at an expedited rate over general population because you lose so many nutrients just through sweat. Um, and if you can, and then that's compounded, obviously, by the number of training sessions that you may have per day or per week, per month, what have you. Um, and so, you know, I've got certain supplement protocols that I will use with different athletes, depending on what 
we're trying to achieve. Uh, but kind of the foundation, uh, uh, supplement protocol always, almost always starts with a probiotic, um, or I'm sorry, a, a multivitamin. And then from there, it's a fish oil and magnesium, vitamin D3, especially with the months that we're in now, um, and a probiotic. Uh, those are kind of like the foundation supplements because those are the kind of supplements or the, the nutrients that we should be getting every day through our just basic nutrition. But uh, because of current agricultural practices, that sort of thing, we typically don't get, uh, don't get it. Uh, for example, uh, when I was a grad student, I did a lot of research on magnesium. Uh, and magnesium is a super important nutrient. And it is estimated by uh, 2009, the Food and Drug Administration released a chart that, uh, that looked at uh, basic, uh, uh, sorry, RDAs, recommended daily allowances. And something like 68% of the North American population doesn't even get the minimum require or the minimum level of magnesium necessary. Mm-hmm. Magnesium does like 300 different things within the body. Yeah. Now for performance athletes, that's super important because everyone's familiar with ATP, right? Adenosine triphosphate. We used to refer to it as cellular currency, right? In school. Well, here's the deal. In order for ATP to be bioavailable, so in order for it to be in a form that your body can actually use, it has to be carried through the bloodstream or carried through the body for, with the magnesium ion. And if you've got 68% of the, of the American population that is not even meeting the recommended daily allowance, it's important to note that the recommended daily allowances were established in the 1940s as we prepared to mobilize for World War II to identify a nutrient and how much of it was necessary to prevent a deficiency. So at the end of the day, the recommended daily allowances are how much is necessary to prevent a deficiency. It has absolutely nothing to do with optimizing someone's performance. And if 68% of the population is not even meeting the basic bare minimum, athletes aren't even close because you lose so much of it through sweat. You lose so much of it through just the practice of your sport. Do you ever take uh, Calm, that magnesium drink? Well, no. <laughs> uh, it, it's I don't, crazy. It's like I, lucid dreams. And like, I was like, I, right. is there acid in this thing? Like, I'm tripping out. It was sure. very sure. odd. No, it's, uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that uh, you know, that usually means can mean i don't want to say usually but mean but it can mean that yeah you might be a little bit deficient in your body you know you give that body the what it needs and it's like oh boy soaks did, it up did ashton ask you about lactigo he did not okay i figured he might run it by you so i sent him some it's a uh, carnosine uh product so basically instead of having a supplement with beta alanine they figured out how to pass it through the skin first company ever to do it um I, the they're probably going to, I might have to edit this out because they actually, since the FDA, since it hasn't been done before, the FDA is making them prove it in order to put it on their website in wording. So they will talk about it. So basically it soaks up the hydrogen when the lactate is broken down when you're going hard. But for lifting, they've used it in like MMA for years. They're using it in track and field. And I joked with the dude, I'm like, dude, I'm going to take a bath in this. And he's like, yeah, 2016 Olympics basically did that with people. And I was like, are you serious? I guess when they went from wherever it was to Rio, they cut the time in between the heats. So to get it actually, the carnosine in the muscle, you want at least 45 minutes. He's like, athletes were finishing their heat and they'd come over to warm up and I'd, or to, to warm down. And he's like, I'd actually like be ripping their pants off, lathering them in lactigo. I'm like, we just need to throw them in a bath but it also has magnesium and my performance in the gym 
and on the bike. I've only been using this since probably September, like crushing PRs that I've, I'm 39. And uh, sure. they've, they've got some NHL guys that have gotten their hands on it. And one guy okay, yeah. went to their like combine where they have like times and, you know, different um, basically like speed assessments. And they said that he was crushing all the team's times that he was getting drug tested. Like the, the league was sending people like, dude, what's, you've never posted times like this, something you're on something. And he's like, yeah, this little can, I'll send you a link on it. It's super yeah, interesting. Um, sure. But Okay, I've got – oh, and the other question, what's your thoughts on everyone always – there's half a camp that takes the multivitamin, the other half that says you just pee it out. Do you think it's whatever right. you maintain, whatever you hold on to is worth peeing out the rest of it or you don't think that you pee it out? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that's the funny thing is the fact that I've got like – you know, it's kind of like anytime that you read kind of the same thing in multiple sources mm-hmm. that, you know, are all reputable, I, there's probably something to it. And so, you know, for the camp that doesn't take that multivitamin because you just pee it out, I'd rather just pee it out. I'd rather pee it out. Because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if you're not giving your body what it needs in order to optimize your performance, then, you know, what are you doing? You know, I mean, because that's always the thing. It's like people are looking for like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, Mm -hmm. but they just completely bypass the basics. And it's like when you look at multivitamins, there's a lot of research, you know, there's even some research that suggests the fact that we have up to over a hundred times the stress of our grandparents. And it's largely because of just our social constructs and that sort of thing. But if you also consider the fact that they had like, you know, a great depression, a dust bowl and a couple of world wars in there, it's kind of a big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for those that, that, that don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that school of thought, I would suggest then that they do a deeper, uh, a deeper delve into the research and not just cherry pick things that, uh, that kind of support whatever it is that they believe. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's like, well, I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, your body needs, needs basic vitamins and minerals in order to operate efficiently. It's also well documented that athletes will lose nutrients at an expedited rate just through the sheer practice of their sport. Those two things are pretty much indisputable, right? Um, and so what I have found, though, I think this sometimes is what may be at the root cause of what drives that kind of idea. And, there, and I cannot fault them at it for, at, for it at all. And that is because the supplement industry is heavily, heavily unregulated. And there's a lot of uh, less than reputable brands out there that are looking for basically just a way to increase their profit margin. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to it, like if you're getting multivitamins from Dillon's and Costco and Walmart and that sort of thing, you're getting subpar uh, products, period. Like some of the best brands that are out there uh, you will not find in health food stores. You will not find in grocery stores. Uh, so if you are like, uh, hit us with some uh, of those, what's, what's the brands that you like? Yep. That's what I was, that's where I was going actually. Uh, the one that I use is called, uh, designs for health. Um, they are, uh, really great at providing, uh, educational materials for both either the practitioner and or the client. So it kind of explains, you know, the, the reasons as to why it also provides, uh, links to research to, uh, to kind of, uh, Uh, If you're interested in reading that sort of thing, Uh, I like um, uh, Designs for Health. I like ATP Labs. I like uh, the Polycon Group. Um, Let's see. Seems like there's another one that I'm missing, but I uh, can't remember it right off the top of my head. Um, That's right. But you can message me it and yeah, we'll put it on there. Dude, so I got to give this guy the plug. If you're in 
Kansas and you're not setting up an appointment to go talk to Chris, like I got this guy on for weightlifting and I'm going to like chew his ear off talking about nutritional stuff. Uh, this is incredible, man. Um, with that said, let's jump into the weights uh, portion. One yeah. thing that I thought was interesting that Ashton mentioned, you know, we do periodized training for cycling. We have different build phases and, you know, you're, then you're racing and we rotate right. training blocks. Sure. I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, athlete number one that's guilty of, I just lift heavy. And I do, I don't know if you're familiar with GZCLP, it's linear progression. It's a similar to, I guess, probably like a strong lifts five by five. It's more of like a five by three tier one is your big lift of the day. Then you do like a three by 10 of a tier two. And then tier three is three by 15s. Um, and I do deadlift squat and then overhead press. I skip the bench day and just rotate those three. Um, when he's talking about rotating blocks, what's your theory on how an athlete should be looking at their strength program? And obviously, this is going to be individualized and different for everybody. But for the, the person listening, where should they start? Ah, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, it somewhat depends on what their background with training is. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it's somebody who's relatively new to it, I would suggest then finding somebody who's, you know, who's you know, got the qualifications, et cetera, et cetera, in order to show you kind of, uh, you know, what the basics kind of basics are. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's where things kind of start to get a little bit, a little bit fuzzy is because we're talking about a very specific sport with a very set, a very specific set of biomechanical demands uh, and, you know, bioenergetic demands. Um, and so this idea that squat, like in, in many athletics programs, like this idea that like squat, bench, power, clean, squat, bench, power, clean is all you need. It's like, man, there's more to athletic preparation than just those three lifts, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, for example, like there is probably over 180 different ways that you can perform the squat. The trouble is that most people only know two, the front squat, and the back squat. Right. And so there's lots of different ways to program it. Um, and so if it's, you know, somebody that is a little bit more advanced, then obviously you can get away with using a little bit more, uh, advanced methods. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, when it's, if, if it's a beginner, I'm very much, um, of the opinion that they need to find someone that can show them how to execute the big lifts appropriately, properly with good mm -hmm. technique. Um, and I think that, you know, from there, you know, it kind of starts to get a little bit, um, more individualized, I suppose, you know, uh, so you can, you know, beginners can make pretty good progress with a very, very simple, very, very basic program. Uh, but past that point, you know, you need to get a little bit more deeper into the weeds. So for example, like the, the thing that I frequently will tell a lot of the endurance cyclists actually is like the same, the program that took you from pro or from amateur level to pro level is not necessarily going to be the same program that sustains you as a pro, you know? And so you kind of get to a point where you need to be a little bit more conscious of working smarter, not necessarily working harder. I'm a big fan of working smarter and harder, you know? Mm -hmm. What would be some of those things that you've seen with cyclists that have like, they've been lifting any general trends and tweaks that you have to make? Like I come in and I'm like, Hey yeah. man, I'm squatting, I'm deadlifting. So actually let's do this. So my full picture, not to get a free console, I'm happy to pay for this. Uh, I'm doing like squats, deadlifts, overhead press, uh, bent over rows, tons of core, lunges, mm -hmm. 
Um, trying to think of my days right now. Uh, Goblin Squat, uh, Farmer Carry. Trying to be varied and not just doing three things. Um, and my goal is, my goal is overall athlete. I really want to be an athlete mm -hmm. until I'm 70. So just right, right. being strong human being, as opposed to, you know, some people ask me questions of like, ask to grass or do I squat 90 degrees or da, da, da. I'm like, and my similar answer is I always tell people, number one, I'm not a strength coach. So if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, you got to talk to somebody that this is their job. I'm trying to get you to, to want to lift. But I mm -hmm. always say, I'm like, dude, there's, I don't say 180, but I might start saying that. I say, there's a hundred different ways to squat vary it up if you sure. want to like just get in the gym and do something safely and you're mm -hmm. going to get benefit from that that's my sort of viewpoint you might tell that might be not what you believe in but what would you say so i walk in i'm like yo this is my deal um yeah. i'm racing a lot i'm riding a ton what kind of comes to your mind when that's the athlete we are like okay i've seen this before sure so, you know, usually the first thing that, uh, that, uh, that I look at is, you know, what are their, what are their, to be honest with you, how do they stand just at rest? How do they stand? Mm -hmm. If I have the opportunity to kind of see someone walk in like, or just walk without them knowing that I'm watching them, that can mm -hmm. tell me quite a little bit. Uh, but kind of like with the uh, nutritional stuff where you have those four kind of key areas mm -hmm. with cycling, what I've seen is there's not enough emphasis on hamstring strength, especially as knee flexors. So like leg curl variations, they typically have an anteriorly rotated pelvis because of all of the miles and all the hours in the saddle. Um, and they typically have very weak um, and or, well, they usually have very weak uh, scapular stabilizers. So they're usually not very strong through the mid back. Uh, and they are typically, they typically present with a little bit of a uh, anterior rotation of the shoulders. And so their shoulders are kind of rolled forward a little bit. And again, that just has to do with uh, the amount of time spent on the bike. And so that tells me right away that, you know, one of the things that we need to do is improve strength of the hamstrings as knee flexors. We need to work on drawing the hips back into a neutral position because you want to make sure that the, that the, uh, that the spine is safe um, when you're squatting and deadlifting. There are a lot of folks that will be somewhat surprised that when I start working with the cyclist uh, kind of right out of the gate, I don't have them squat. I may have them work on a, on a hip hinge or a deadlift variation, but I don't have them squat until I, can, until I know for sure that they're able to, be, uh, to get themselves into a good neutral, um, uh, get the hips into a neutral position and not be anteriorly rotated because it just improves or increases stress on the low back, which uh, you typically never want. Because if the nervous system identifies that, hey, the spinal column is somewhat, you know, the structural integrity is, is somewhat compromised, it will actually start to shut down uh, uh, neural drive or uh, neural input into the primary movers as a way for the body to kind of protect your back, so to say. So you kind of get to a point where it's like, well, that lift is, you kind of stagnate, you, can, you kind of plateau, right? Uh, then I work a lot with uh, opening up the pectoral girdle. So we work on working uh, or uh, uh, gaining more flexibility in the lat and the subscapularis and the pectoral muscles. Uh, because until we do that, it makes it somewhat difficult sometimes to really target the scapular stabilizers, uh, especially the the uh, the muscles that kind of attach on the lower part of the shoulder blade that kind of draw the, the shoulder blades down. Now that's an important thing because if the put it this way, the spine kind of the spine and the rib cage kind of tell the shoulder blade where to go, and then the shoulder blade tells the upper arm bone where to go. Okay, so it's a very I don't want to say complex. 
but there are, you know, it's they, all those muscles that work, all those joints, you know, kind of work in concert uh, in order to produce or resist movement. And if there's a discrepancy somewhere in those, in that, in that, what we call kinetic chaining or kinetic sequencing, if there's some sort of a discrepancy in there, it will ultimately uh, usually negative impact, have a negative impact on how the shoulder, uh, shoulder works. And so it's usually the end result with that is sometimes uh, one of those injuries where it's like, well, man, I didn't like there was no trauma. Like I didn't hurt myself. It just started aching one day and it's just kind of been there. It doesn't go away, you know, Mm -hmm. so they're kind of a a subtle injury. So we open that up. And then when we open up the pectoral girdle puts us in a better position now to really target those muscles that stabilize the scapula. Uh, Because at the end of the day, if you don't, if you can't thoroughly stabilize your scapula, again, kind of like what I said with the squat, your body will kind of reach a point where it is, uh, uh, senses the fact that things are not, you're out of alignment, so to say, and it will kind of limit how strong you can get in basic pulling and pressing exercises. Uh, so those are kind of the key areas that I usually look for. And more often than not, the key areas that we have to start attacking right out of the gate, because you're only as strong as your weakest link. If those are your weak links, what's going to ultimately limit how well you perform in the stuff that you are good at. But as soon as you strengthen and correct those weak links, you know, those are no longer your weak links and you usually will perform better at the stuff that you were already pretty good at. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I even hate asking this question then after hearing about like how squatting is not the first thing that people are doing, but this is the question asked all the time. Do I have to squat sure. ass to grass or since I'm a cyclist, can I go to 90 degrees and just do heavier weight there? That's a I very, feel like very you don't even want to answer that question, but I'm going to make you. <laughs> it's okay. So, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, high bar Olympic squats. So getting as deep in the hole as you can get. Okay. But here's the caveat. If it's someone who has the flexibility and the bone structure to do so. Mm-hmm. So there's something to hold a hip scour test. And this uh, test more or less identifies the depth of someone's hip sockets. And so if someone's got fairly shallow hip sockets, they can usually squat ass to the grass with, with no issues. However, if someone's got very deep hip sockets, they may only be able to squat two parallel or, you know, thereabouts uh, just because they don't have the bone structure. They just don't have that flexibility, you know, in their hips. And so like with a lot of things in this profession, the answer is it depends, you know, yeah. so it depends on what ability it is. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, with cyclists though, so let's say that it is somebody who doesn't have, you know, any issues. I'm always going to be a fan of high bar Olympic level squats or Olympic squats, kind of what we refer to them, just because that's how, uh, Olympic weightlifters will squat. And that largely has to do with, with the fact that if you look at the knee angle on the bike, when, as you're going through your pedal uh, sequence, your pedal cadence, and you notice like, what's the steepest angle that the femur and the, and the tibia kind of get into? What's the, what's the sharpest angle that they get into? It's typically never going to be uh, the same angle that you would see if someone's squatting ass to grass, right? Mm-hmm. So my point there is that that being the case, there's going to be certain discrepancies that you see as kind of a result uh, of only, you know, squatting through a limited range of motion. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of squatting through a full range of motion most of the year. Uh, But then as a major competition rolls around, that's when we start to shorten up the range of motion. So that's when we may do like a top third squat or an inertia squat. Uh, or, you know, a banded inertia squat where you're actually having, you know, you're having the bar set on the safety catches, you've got bands attached to it, and then you're having to blast off the start. Uh, Because it better, there's a little bit more carryover to a standing start with that kind of an exercise than there would be with like, you know, performing a full squat or something like that. Not that full squats aren't beneficial, 
But when you look at the periodization of it, that's kind of how I go. So all other times of the year when there's no major competitions, I'm a big fan of full range of motion movements. But then as a big competition gets closer, that's when I start to shorten up the range of, of motion. And the reason for that is if you shorten up the range of motion and train a lift only through the strongest range of motion, right, where you're the strongest, you're going to get a, think of it as like almost like supercharging the nervous system. So if you can full squat, we'll say 200 pounds, right? But then when we put you in like a half squat or a top third squat, you can squat 300 pounds. Well, that just goes to show that you're going to get higher or uh, better activation out of higher threshold motor units, which then carries over to the bike. And so what does that mean? You know, I mean, what's the implication yeah, so that's of the bike then? So how much does an average bike weigh, would you say? we'll say 16 pounds, 16 pounds. Okay. So 16 pounds is a smaller percentage of 300 than it is of 200. Correct. Yes. Yes. Right. And so what that means is that, you know, you're going to get more carryover because you are now working at a higher intensity zone uh, than you were able to work at if you're squatting through a full range of motion, if that makes sense. So you're saying that lifting the heavier is better or it's not as good. No, lifting heavier is absolutely better. Okay. Absolutely. So better. it's okay if someone's doing the heavier weights, more limited range as they get closer to the competition. In my, the way that I program, 100%. Okay. Yes. So a couple things that jumped out there. You mentioned periodization. So I want to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. And also uh, link this up with then potentiation, which I had no idea what that was. And Ashton dropped that on me when we were chatting. Um, let's start with periodization. Is there a general periodization besides the lift full body range of motion movements as you get closer to competition, then focus on the heavier, heaviest weight we'll say that you can do. And what would you say is close to competition within two months, a month, two weeks? Right, right. So usually the way that I will do it is, you know, it depends again, kind of on the training background of an athlete. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's kind of additional linear periodization, you know, that everyone's kind of at least somewhat familiar with. And so, you know, that usually means it's something more along the lines of, um, for example, like the first phase is 12 to 15 reps. The next phase is like 10 to 12, 8 to 10, 6 to 8. So it's kind of a linear, you know, progression. Uh, as someone's training age gets a bit, <clears throat> a bit older, I may change things up a little bit. I, I really like undulating uh, periodization. Um, I usually reserve that more of to use kind of in the off season uh and that's largely just due to the nature of the sport and so uh as we get closer to competition i, I usually will switch back over to more of a linear uh periodization and that largely has to do with the fact that uh uh you know training for endurance and training for strength are they kind of live on polar ends of the spectrum of the performance spectrum and so as the mileage as the, as the mileage picks up you know then we want to, we, we don't want to kill them with lots of volume, you know, in the weight room. Mm -hmm. So the downside though, is that if you're, it, the more endurance training you do, the less effective, uh, the less efficient, the, le the weaker you become, put it that way. Right. And so that being said, I really do like the linear periodization as far as a major competition getting closer, because then it allows you to kind of work on getting stronger, getting stronger, getting stronger. And then about two weeks or so out from the major competition is when we try to peak you. Right. And so that's when you're going to be trying to lift the most amount of weight, usually almost always through a limited range of motion, depending on the lift. Um, and then, you know, off, off you go to the, 
uh, to the track or to the to the road. Uh, Ashton's a big um, proponent of uh, lifting close to competition. I know that is a no-no as far as a lot of coaches and a lot of cyclists go, and I completely agree with Ashton. Um, in my opinion, if I had the opportunity, uh, every cyclist would, if, if we're talking about track cycling, every one of them would be in the weight room at least 30 minutes or as close to the competition, the start of competition as we could. Uh, and this is kind of a decent segue, I suppose, uh, uh, to really maximize the potentiation aspect of things. Um, and so we start kind of with high volume in the months leading up to a competition, but then that volume drops and the intensity goes up and then it just kind of stair steps until, you know, we're lifting, you know, uh, one of my favorite rep schemes for kind of peaking is a five, four, three, two, one. So it's five sets, um, five sets usually, or five reps usually represents about 85% of your one rep max. And then we kind of stair step it down. Um, and that way, you know, you have, it's kind of a gradual warm up, you know, and then ultimately trying down to meaning less reps, but more weight. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to, okay. So let me, man, I got 8 million questions stemming from that. So when someone's warming up for lifting, I've noticed that if I, when I first started lifting, I wanted to always make sure that I was, you know, not jumping into the weight too heavy. Then I start, mm -hmm. you know, say I get up to like, I'm lifting something, doing a deadlift at like 300 pounds. If you start at 135, you got a lot of warming up to do to get to 300 if you're only adding 20 pounds at a time. So I kind of was just right. guesstimating and say, all right, I'll start 155, maybe 185. Do you have a protocol of what someone should do to warm up? Or is this by feel? Like, I didn't want it to feel too heavy. And as I got, you know, I would only do like, when I first started lifting, I think I was doing like 10 reps of each weight to warm up. And then I'd get to the, you know, I'd lift it, but I'm like, man, this is just like a lot of that movement. Now I just do yeah. four or five at each weight and, um, you know, really focus on the form and everything. What's your idea of like, what should a warm up be to get to 300 pounds? Yeah. Which to you so, might be like, dude, that is the warm up, but for us baby lifters. No, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, no, so it's usually going to be kind of a percentage-based uh, or kind of percentage-driven, as it were. Okay. Um, and so it's like, well, 300 pounds is kind of the goal. Then we kind of, you know, what's 65% of that? 75, 85. And depending on how the weight feels, depending on the recovery, uh, recovery of the athlete, just kind of go by feel sort of at that point. Okay. And so, you know, it's usually if I'm working with someone in person, it's a lot of the time going to be, uh, the speed of the bar on the concentric. So if they're able to still lift fast, then we may go up a little bit uh, more aggressively with their loading. Um, but, you know, if we're working, for example, I mentioned the five, four, three, two, one uh, rep scheme. So if that's the scheme that we're going to be using, you know, the, the, the warm up reps may look very similar to that. And so we don't want to go too high with too many reps because then we're trying, we're, we're training outside of the zone that we're actually going to be training in. So we want to try to maintain as close to those, uh, to that, uh, uh, those, those, the, the reps as we can, you know? Um, and so then, you know, I kind of usually will give them a little bit of an idea of where those warm up numbers should be based on numbers that they've actually done before. So I use an app that uh, kind of tracks all that. Um, and then from there, you know, it will give, it's cool because it will give me a, uh, is it client? Uh, no, it's called train heroic. Okay. Um, so it's kind of a multi-use one. Uh, a lot of teams use it. Uh, trainers, coaches use it. 
but uh, well, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think Train Heroic is actually owned by the same folks that own Training Peaks. I'm not entirely sure about that, but oh. I, I think that might yeah. be the case. Um, Man, I'll tell you, they do a bad job of uh, advertising because I'm on Training Peaks 20 hours a day and I've never seen it. So if it is, I'm going to have to email them and be like, yo, put an ad up. Well, I've even, yeah, because I've, 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 you know, kind of, uh, I had a, a, a call with them not too long ago and, you know, kind of made mention of the fact that, like, if you guys are owned by the, you know, same folks, it would be great if we could marry those two platforms because the one thing that you will find, or actually the one thing that you will have no problem finding is a number of apps that will train like the endurance side of performance, right? Uh, but there are not very many um, apps out there that track like the strength training side of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole here, but I'll kind of give you an idea. Uh, so like one of the things that I've wanted to do, um, and this was something that I was kind of uh, pitching to the head coach before uh, COVID, was, you know, if we were able to then, so if all the athletes are using training peaks to track their, their training, then we can export that data. If we're using, you know, train heroic for their strength training things uh, side of things, then we can export that data. Well, then if we plug in major competitions and we can start layering that stuff over one another, then we can get a better idea of how someone responds to certain kinds of training and we can better individualize their training program. Uh, because if we're talking about a team of like five to seven guys, that is not that big. Of, that's not that big of an undertaking. It's just the collection of that data first, you mm -hmm. know, uh, but that, you know, for a different topic for a different day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing that how athletes, especially newer ones to power, since it's been out there for a long time, um, you know, they think that the Bible has been written on training with power. And I'm like, guys, just remember, I mean, the things that have changed from when I started using power 12 or 13 years ago, 10 years ago, totally different ball game. And they were really guessing then, like, we have ideas of what works and everything, but like, add in strength training this is you really need to listen to your body you need to like use the data they're great tools but this is by far not the bible and so yeah i think having those types of things married together ash and i were talking i'm like what kind of training stress score did you use he's like 75 just seems like a good guess and i'm because there's you know we don't have a power meter when we're lifting and the first when i started lifting i wasn't even counting strength because i was like well i don't count every mile that i walk and i don't count you know, whatever, but I, I really feel like now that I lift heavy and I feel that neuromuscular like shred or whatever you want to call it at night when it's just like, Oh wow, I'm exhausted. Right. That counts for right. something. Um, sort of speaking of stress and strain, you know, um, as a cyclist or an endurance athlete, you might go through a big week and you might add on hours and you might just do for me, partly sometimes I'm just like, I just want to burn a ton of kilojoules these last few days and like go into the rest week. Is there any a time where lifting more is a good idea or is that just setting yourself for injury? And if we could define more meaning um, sets or weight or what does more mean? And I also want to be cognizant, we're at an hour. I'm good if you're good, but if you have to go, let me know whenever closing time is. Sure. No, I'm actually my computer is uh, running out of running out of juice here. So, well, <laughs> oh, you're good. And dude, this is awesome information. Uh, yeah. Oh, and one other question before I forget too. I noticed you have online like if people can't visit you in Kansas, you have uh, is it you have online plans, correct? 
I do. I do. Yes. Yeah. So people, uh, you guys so got to check out his website. Um, is this type of information included in those plans or we can chat about it later. Or just send me info. I can post with this so people can check it out. Um, sure. Sorry. I just asked you like five yeah. questions at once. Let's start with the big week is a big, is a big, like, like today. So I'm about to have a rest week uh, coming up. I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to do like a five hour ride today. I've only got the gym cause it's raining and 35 degrees bad idea to lift more or can do you add on a set yeah so i mean you know sometimes that's going to be very dependent on someone's recoverability and so uh, you know the thing with endurance athletes a lot of the time is that they're they are frequently overtrained and so you know it's and that's not confined to just today but like long term mm -hmm. because the thing with stress is the fact that it's cumulative right mm -hmm. and so if you're not recovered from this workout we'll say and then you want to go and you want to put the hammer down, right? But you're not recovered from the workout the day before. You go put the hammer down. Well, now you're not recovered from that workout on the third day. And so it's just like it keeps burying you and putting you further down your recoverability. And so, you know, if there are certain days where you have the opportunity to lift more, I'm always a big fan of that. Uh, because uh, strength is more of a what we call kind of a perishable skill. Unless you practice it and you practice it often, you'll, you'll lose it over time. Endurance, however, is not necessarily the same. Uh, there's actually some research that suggests that like elite level marathon runners can get away with doing one, one long run per month and not lose anything as far as their cardiovascular capacity goes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things too with uh, endurance athletes is the fact that they are typically very much a, uh, they're kind of a thyroid driven uh, person. So kind of going back to the ectomorph kind of body type. They're usually thyroid driven. They usually don't do very well with idle time. Um, and they like to be busy. They like to be, you know, doing something that's going to help get them better uh, at what they do. And so what do they do if their time starts to, to tank a little bit? They ride more. Mm -hmm. That's actually the opposite of what they should be doing, in my opinion. They should be resting more or they should be lifting more or doing something that's going to put them in a position then to, uh, to optimize their training when they get back, you know, kind of when they get back to it. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, lifting more is usually a good idea. Um, you know, devoting more time uh, in the off season to lifting, I think, is kind of the way to go. Um, and there definitely should be an off season. Let me refer, you know, because too many times everybody wants to go like all year long. It'll be like, you know, negative five degrees outside and people are still riding, you know, and it's like that is usually not the best approach. You know, mm -hmm. spend that time in other areas of your performance that will end up making you better, you know, when, you, when the season resumes or when things kind of get back to, back to normal, as it were. Um, so I'm a big fan of, you know, training more, uh, spending more time in the weight room kind of out of season. And then as the seasons get closer, the road mileage picks up, then cut that, uh, that time in the gym back. Um, and when you cut that time in the gym back, now you're focusing a little bit more on the major, you know, the big primary muscle groups, the big compound lifts. When you are out of season and you have more time to spend in the weight room, that's when you really want to start working on those little, dis those discrepancies uh, that you start to see, or those key areas that most cyclists are going to need to work on. Or if there's a certain lift that you need to improve, um, you know, that's the time to do it, right? Because by the time the season rolls around and you need to be strong, you need to be powerful, like the ship has sailed as far as like trying to, uh, you know, identify and remedy those, uh, those weak links and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's, it's been interesting too, with the really 
huge surge in people doing indoor racing. And it's also, mm-hmm. I see a lot with athletes that live in the South where it's never poor weather. Um, I'm okay if somebody rides all year long. It's just, you need to really dial back the intensity. And that's one thing, uh, you know, I'll do a, just, I tell like we, I, my mentor was very old school. And so it was like, do not sprint from, and I was in upstate New York. So it was cold and snowy. Do not sprint from November until the middle of January ever. And I, mm-hmm. and I abided by that. And I, it's still in me a little bit like, you know, there's a lot of physiological reasons why someone's going to sabotage their endurance workout if they are sprinting, but we won't go down that rabbit sure. hole. But it's also like, just let the body do some recovery. Just go ride, get aerobically yes. fit, go lift in the gym. And there was somebody, uh, to your point of the marathon runners, I think mm-hmm. people are surprised. I do a lot of long rides. And so I always, because of things now with social media, I try to tell people, I'm like, don't do it. I'm, I'm riding. I'm not riding for uh, getting better at racing. I'm riding for my own personal reasons of like, I love riding and it's a better option than other things I used to do. But sure. they see mega miles and I'm like, dude, do two long rides a month and you will be much yeah. better at long events. Sure. I don't need you doing six hours every day on the weekend. Like, and right yeah. now you might not be able, your body might not be able to handle that. Also on the yeah. flip side, somebody was telling me, tell me what you think of this, that when it comes to lifting heavy, that if you're doing maintenance work, if you can get in the gym twice in a month they said you can mostly maintain on heavy lifts so if you get into a part of the season where you got a bunch of races go in on a tuesday do your heavy lift get to the b race you may maybe not lift the week of the a race i don't necessarily agree with that i'm kind of more in your camp of like i i keep lifting now um yes but can you you can maintain with a couple lifts a month can't you if it's a quality yeah i mean it's it's typically yeah about the quality i mean yeah. You know, if there comes a point where, you know, that's the only option that you have, that is better than not lifting at all. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you step, definitely want to maintain quality of effort, maintain quality work. Um, and so it's not about like one thing that I see a lot, too, sometimes is like, you know, uh, somebody will be getting into the season or, you know, they have a big race or something like that, that like that come up. Well, I'll still go lift, but I'll just lift light. To which I usually say, then don't do a fucking thing. Just don't lift. <laughs> Yeah. You're gonna lift light, and don't lift because you're not doing any. You're not doing yourself any favors. Yeah, cover. You know, you're working out. You're exercising. You're not making yourself a faster, stronger athlete, dude. That's awesome to hear. That's very, uh, yeah, love it. Um, a few more questions for you. Uh, sure. when we another very popular question from the cycling community is deadlifting, straight bar or trap bar. Yeah, that's a good question. So I typically, so, okay, so depending on what sport you're looking at, there's something that we sometimes refer to as uh, predictor lifts. And so a predictor lift is a lift that shares a movement pattern that is similar to a movement pattern that is inherent in the sport or the position that someone plays. Okay. And so the feedback that I've gotten from the cyclists is that they feel that the trap bar deadlift has a lot more carryover to the bike than a traditional um, deadlift does. Um, and the other thing that I'll say about that too, is I will usually, especially at the beginning, uh, kind of make the trap bar deadlift kind of the first and foremost kind of, you know, uh, deadlift variation that we use. And then I use straight bar variations like Romanian deadlifts and things like that 
is more of an accessory exercise. Mm-hmm. And that is largely due to trying to get them, get their, excuse me, get their pelvis back into an, a bit of a neutral position. And so just really trying to, you know, really strengthen that lower back, the glutes and the hamstrings, especially. Um, and then as time goes on, if it's someone who can then maintain a neutral uh, hip position, then we can maybe uh, transition to more of traditional style deadlifts. Like one that I really like to use with Ashton and that one that he likes is a, it's called a rack pull. So it's just like a, a partial range of motion deadlift inside of a power rack. Um, he really likes that one. Man, it's great to hear that because especially like, you know, all these questions, it comes back to the individual, what's your goal. And I mean, really the answer that I always have in my head is, okay, I just, I switched gyms when I moved out here to this farm and they have a trap bar, never had access to one before. So I like it. I can do heavier weight. It feels a little bit safer. It does feel a little bit more bike specific, but then I asked myself, but I kind of was into lifting for not bike specific, but overall athletic human health. So maybe I should have the straight bar as like my T2 lift when I'm deadlifting, uh, do some variation, different stimulus. So it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting to hear, you know, you gotta, when an athlete asks this question, it is like, okay, what's the goal? What's the purpose of doing this? Like, like you really got to think about it. And that's, I mean, I feel like that's been a little bit of a thread through this whole conversation. It's really hard to give these, um, just broad recommendations and that's why we're very anti like template training i usually tell an athlete like we don't sell templates because it you can find one free online first off so don't pay me for that but secondly you know you can learn a lot and if you don't have the money to to pay for a coach which is cool like just put some time in and you'll be able to set up your own plan way better than a random thing that has no idea about you which is kind of, I think, my very first question. You're like, okay, well, it depends, and here's why. So, um, plateauing in lifting. So, yeah. a lot of times for cycling, it's you got to change up the stimulus. And I'll see athletes that have plateau, and it's like, well, dude, you've done the same thing for the past two months. No wonder your body's not getting any different stimulus. You're actually just going to get worse at that. What's kind of, uh, and I'll tell you. So through my through the GZCLP. When you can no longer do five by three, you go to six by two, but increase weight. And then it's 10 by one increase weight. When you can't lift that, you rest a couple days and you restart the five by three at 85% of your five rep max. So I don't know if that mm-hmm. is the correct terminology of like a weightlifting plateau, but that was someone's specific question. What does Chris think of like, what do you do when an athlete is just not getting stronger? So, yeah, when it comes to, you know, uh, to plateauing, you know, that is just kind of one of the things that goes with the territory, as it were. And so, you know, it's going to be more or less about how you apply, kind of like what you were saying, it's going to be kind of about how you apply the stimulus. And so, and that, where I come from anyway, from at least how I program, that usually means that we're going to find where... Like, is it a particular lift that someone is plateauing on? And if that's the case, where are they, like, where's their sticking point? And once we kind of identify where their sticking point is, then it becomes a lot easier uh, to put together a program that includes variations uh, either of that lift um, or uh, assistance exercises that are going to help keep them progressing with that lift. Okay. Yeah. 
that's and that's one thing too that um you know as a newbie lifter i consume some stuff on youtube about it to try and just hear what other people with more experience are doing and a big i think it was alan thrall he's big on like these tertiary lifts and one of his buddies was talking about how you know I think it's like the bent over row is going to help your deadlift down the road. And it's not just the deadlift. It's all these other little things you do that will make you stronger. And he was, I mean, this dude's huge and ridiculously ripped. And he's like, or maybe it was the high pull. It was something he's like, no doubt. When I started skipping these thinking they were BS from so-and-so he's like, my, I just, I stopped making the gains. I went back and did the extra little work, get the extra little 1% here and there. It adds up on itself. Yeah. And um, it's very interesting. Just, you know, I think as cyclists too, we don't realize how much goes into lifting weights. It's a sport of its own. So that's why I always tell people, listen, I'm giving you recommendations based off what I know, and I am not a strength coach. So it's it's a good reminder that if people really want to go all in on, when they learn the importance of strength, you know, talking to somebody, beyond this podcast is going to be highly valuable for them in developing as a better athlete and cyclist. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, is not always given the kind of attention again, that I, that I believe that it is, or that it's due. And that is, you know, there are many folks out there that, that think that, uh, you know, that this is just simply lifting weights. It's picking a barbell up and putting it down. Or there are many people out there who might think that, um, if you're familiar with like uh, West Side Barbell, you know, they're power lifters, right? Yes, they are exceptionally strong and they're very good at what they do. But at the end of the day, if you have a cyclist whose entire training philosophy is essentially, you know, kind of um, borrowed from another sport, well, that not, might not necessarily mean that that's the best approach um, for them, uh, you know, for that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, man. I'm going to get out of um, here in a second. I got two last oh, ones no, for you if you got a minute. Um, yeah. All right. One guy was asking about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, plyometrics. Do you ever switch off heavyweight and go to plyo or specific speed work? And his specific question was more lifts at cycling speed. So like he said, 80 to 120 RPM. I don't know how you would equate that into the weightlifting world um, or just plyo in general in weights. What's your, or do you sprinkle it in? What's your kind of thought? Yeah. So again, it largely depends on where someone is in relation to their season because the ability to produce power is really just a mathematical equation of strength and speed. That's Mm -hmm. it. But the problem is, is too many times people want to work on the speed component and don't spend enough time working on the strength component of it. Right. And so when it comes to, you know, plyometrics, I do use them. um, But I usually will, you know, kind of restrict their use to when a big competition is coming up. Um, when you say restrict, uh, so meaning pl- don't do it during, don't do it close to a competition or only do no, it? No, actually, opposite. Okay. I would do them only in preparation as a big competition gets nearer. Because with plyometrics, like with anything though, like the one biomotor ability that's the, almost the most predominant across all sports is the ability to produce power. The problem though is that a lot of athletes and a lot of coaches then want to work on power development all year long. And that really kind of goes against um, just basic adaptations. So if you're trying to work on power, power, power all year long, that usually means that you're detracting from some other area of your, of your performance. And so 
I, most of the adaptations that someone gets from a training program occur within, you know, the first several, I don't want to give an exact number, but the first several exposures before then kind of the law of diminishing return sets in and it becomes less effective. Mm -hmm. And so the reason that I only use plyometrics and their variations close to a competition is exactly for that reason. We want to use them when they can be the most beneficial, but we don't want to use them for such a long period of time that they start to be less effective. And so we can find them to kind of that, uh, that initial kind of that transition phase where we're trying to convert all that strength that we've built now into power. And so it's, there's a bit of a conversion phase there where, you know, we kind of wrap up, you know, strength stuff as the primary driver of the training program. And then we kind of transition to where now power is the most, you know, uh, important, but at the same time, we're still working the other side of that equation in the sense that like, um, you've used the term tiers, right? So the B, the B, the B tier or the C tier would still be kind of more relative strength work and maybe a little bit of functional hypertrophy. Um, because that's going to be, those strength qualities are, are, are fairly close together that you're not getting too far out of, uh, out of the range, so to say. And mm-hmm. so, uh, all of the stimulus is, is somewhat similar and there's a little bit of, um, uh, dare I say, uh, reciprocal, how do you say that? Uh, uh, I don't, I'm trying to reciprocated. Yeah, reciprocal? a, a bit. Yeah. So yeah. Reciprocal in the sense that, you know, uh, the strength will help to, you know, kind of stay with that power, but the power that work that you just did will kind of potentiate the nervous system for the strength work. And so they all kind of live in the same general area, the same general zone, if you will. Okay. Yeah, man, that's interesting too, to hear you talk about how it's that first, you know, six, I'll put the number on, let's say six exercises, then you have the diminishing returns. I had heard someone, uh, I actually think it was Tim Cusick talking, the guy I referenced before, talking about first six to eight workouts is what you get out of, you know, you're going to make your gains through that. I think eight is really on the far end because the way I look at it is like Tuesday, Thursday, super hard. Hopefully someone's just doing, if it's in before competitions, you know, uh, endurance miles, Tuesday, Thursday, again, sometimes by the next Tuesday or Thursday, just five and six they're like dude i'm i'm tired i'm like that's okay you just bank like those four midweek ones is where you're getting all the massive intensity and then the volume from the aerobic stuff is what's helping you as an endurance cyclist and when i have an athlete that's always either they don't rest or they're like i'm not tired i'm like that then you're not going hard enough we're not pushing it hard enough in hard sessions because you should be um so Last question for you, kind of, um, sure. and I actually don't know this for lifting. Do they, do you guys do rest weeks or my question is going to be super cycling specific when an athlete goes through rest week, obviously let's say, cause it always depends. Let's say it's before competitions. They're taking a rest week cause they've just trained hard three weeks. Do you think they could continue lifting in the gym or should they cut the gym out also? No, I'd, I'd usually suggest that they continue to lift. Uh, okay. But usually what we'll do is cut the volume down because it is, it is the volume that will wear an athlete out faster than anything else. Faster than any other training variable, it's volume, not intensity. And is volume in your term the weight or the number of reps and sets? Number of reps and sets. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for example, if it's like, uh, if it's a big, if it's a primary lift, we'll just say it's a trap bar deadlift. 
let's say it's five sets of three is what the protocol is. But then as uh, if it's a rest week, we may shorten that down to three sets of three. Okay. So we're still potentiating the nervous system, keeping it active, uh, but we're not doing enough volume to incur any kind of residual fatigue. It's just to kind of keep that nervous system, you know, keep it active. Okay. And so then it seems like, in, and man, I'll ask this in embarrassment because you might be like, dude, you totally missed one of my points, is then I feel like we have been talking about when to lift heavy and when to use it in the cycles of training. I don't really feel like light lifting ever came into play. Is lifting light kind of pointless? It depends, you know, kind of what you mean by lifting light. Um, in certain instances it can be beneficial for example if we're talking about um put it this way the lighter the load is obviously the more reps that you can do and so if we're talking about a moderately moderately heavy load for someone of course that's going to be individualized to the person Mm -hmm. it that's going to be better suited for something more of like hypertrophy based kind of training as opposed to like strength style training Mm -hmm. Uh, but if it is let's say that your deadlift max is you know 300 pounds um, and you're like, well, I'm going to go to the gym, uh, but I'm only going to deadlift a hundred pounds. Well, then there's no sense in doing it. Just yeah. rest. Just don't even bother, you know? Right. Um, but at the same time, if it was someone who was, um, you know, on a five by three protocol and they're in a rest week, well, now it might be more of a three by three, uh, kind of protocol. Just, but just keep because it heavy, like, but the, keep it heavy. Yeah. Keep it heavy. Keep right. it heavy. Keep it heavy. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of like what we were talking about a bit ago in the sense that if a, if a bike weighs 16 pounds and 316 pounds is a smaller percentage of 300 pounds, obviously, right, than 200 pounds or 100 pounds, that's what we want. Because at the end of the day, your nervous system is really only going to be as active as like the heaviest thing that it has recently picked up or the recent or the heaviest load that you have recently lifted, if that makes sense at all. Mm-hmm. So like guys, coaches, athletes, whatever, that don't want to lift like anywhere near a competition. They, I mean, it's not like they're not going to get anything out of it, but there's, there is some low, low, there's some low hanging fruit there that if they were to just kind of keep that nervous system potentiated a little bit, there will be a little bit more carryover to the track. It's awesome, man. This was a wealth of information and will spark a wealth of questions for people. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, What's your that uh, most preferred way through like Instagram or email or calling you or what's a good way if they want to sure. link up with you. Yeah. Instagram's fine. Um, there's no problem there. Um, and always shoot me an email. My email address is Chris at athletic Cool. Chris, man, thank yeah. you for going over on the time. This was going to be so beneficial yeah. for so many cyclists. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully if I pass through Kansas, I can pit stop by and meet you in person. And if we can ever help you with something in the cycling world, let us know. Certainly will, man. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks, man. Thanks for doing this on Saturday morning. Hope you have a good rest of the weekend. (laughs) Thank you, man. You too. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Bye.